welcome to another edition of ABI Podcast. I'm Melissa Jacoby, the Graham Keenan Professor of Law at the University of North Carolina, and I'm also the Robert N. Zinman Resident Scholar for the American Bankruptcy Institute for the spring of 2016. So today we're talking about bankruptcies of religious institutions, and with me as a law professor has done the most in-depth systematic empirical study of those cases, which has resulted in a series of published articles, and that is Pamela Foey, who's a law professor at Indiana University Bloomington. Welcome, Pamela. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really delighted to be here to discuss my research. Well, we're really happy to have you. So religious bankruptcies are a small but certainly fascinating subset of Chapter 11s and also of nonprofit filings. So what can you tell us what sparked your interest in these cases and a sense of the scope of your study? So the overall project uh, is an empirical study of the universe of Chapter 11 cases filed by nonprofit entities, first through bankruptcy court records and then through telephone interviews with bankruptcy attorneys who represented the nonprofits and some of the leaders who elected to put their nonprofits into Chapter 11. In terms of years, I'm focusing on post-BAPSIPA cases. So the data set starts at the beginning of 2006 and runs through the end of 2013, and I pull every case that was filed in the 50 United States and D.C., and as you mentioned, as of now, I've focused exclusively on religious nonprofits, which I define as any organization whose goals are motivated in significant part by faith. And even with that definition, the debtors overwhelmingly are Christian churches, small, congregationalist, non-denominational Christian churches. They filed about 700 cases over the last eight years, um, so about 90 overall each year. And I've spoken with 76 bankruptcy attorneys who represented mainly churches in their Chapter 11 cases, as well as 45 leaders from organizations that filed. However, going to the broader project, I chose it because nonprofits occupy an important place in our economy, and they're a growing sector. So for instance, nonprofits account for about 10% of all private sector employment. Yet nonprofits remain relatively understudied, particularly their finances and how they might end up uh, in financial trouble and then turn to bankruptcy. And I thought the Chapter 11 cases, Chapter 11 cases could shine a light on their finances and operations while also providing an avenue to explore how bankruptcy courts handle these Chapter 11 cases, which run the gamut and range of size of business as well as explore a few substantive code provisions. But then as I started analyzing the data, I focused on religious nonprofits almost naturally. They comprise about 65% of the nonprofits that file every year, and thereby they're the clearest block of nonprofits filing. It sounds like you have not only, just to clarify, the uh, sampling, but you have the universe of Chapter 11s in these categories. Exactly. I have all of them from basically from every bankruptcy. Okay, that that's really helpful to know. So a lot of the attention goes to Catholic dioceses, sex abuse claims, and certainly that is a very important element of what's going on in, in a, some bankruptcies. But your project, because you have the universe, really is showing that we need to expand the focus and that there are other issues and elements to religious bankruptcies in Chapter 11 that we should know about. So 
I was wondering if you could share a couple key findings from some of your earlier papers on the subject. Yeah, absolutely. So there's about 90 that file per year. Uh, and in terms of Catholic diocese, they file at a rate of one per year. So there's 89 more per year than I think most people would likely think about. And I think the, one of the first key findings is simply which churches are filing. They're mainly small, congregationalist, non-denominational. And by small, I mean they have a congregation of two or 300 members. And they also own a church building, which has a mortgage on it, of course. But they're relatively established. They've been around for about 15 years, long enough to build up a core congregation and have funds to purchase the building. And then they file because they fall behind on payments to the creditor who gave them the loan to buy the building. And, uh, and they just don't have a broad governing structure to go to to ask for help in times of financial need. And I think the, another key finding going to the cases themselves is just how successful they are. In substance, these are small businesses, whether or not they meet the code's definition. Yet more than half of the cases end in a confirmed reorganization plan or a consensual resolution between the debtor and its secured creditor that allows the congregation to stay in its building. Um, and I think this is really key in terms of small business Chapter 11 cases where the success rate has been reported to be you know, around 15 20%, not the above 50% that I found within these cases. So it sounds like even though we don't think about religious organizations as having some of the attributes of single-asset real estates that cases that they, in a way, these do, that they are functionally similar because they are involving a lending dispute, a mortgage lending dispute? Yes. So most of the churches that file come to bankruptcy with one significant asset, their building, and they have one significant debt, the loan outstanding on that building, which usually is owed to a single creditor. And they have few other assets, maybe a car, some books, um, some, you know, real, some personal property sitting in their church building, and few other debts. And so the cases look a lot like single-asset real estate cases. And when I was talking with pastors in the interviews, they told me that they tried very hard to pay all of their church's debts, and they tried to keep up with the smaller debts simply because they could pay them. And so in that way, they made the cases be single-asset real estate cases, all about the building, um, despite the fact that the debtor is operating a business out of that building. And also makes the cases look a lot like two-party disputes between the debtor and its secured creditor. And this, of course, was something that the creditors raised often during the cases. And I think, to me, it was interesting to see how generally, initially ambivalent bankruptcy judges seemed to these motions. So cases continued in deals were worked out through the bankruptcy process unless there was a clear financial reason, such as the debtor falling behind on adequate protection payments um, for a judge to dismiss the case and uh, kind of close the case. So the fact that these cases are preceded by mortgage problems brings us to your newest research. And in a paper you have pending, it presents and explores a finding that churches with historically or predominantly black membership are overrepresented in bankruptcy relative to the general population. So can you say a little bit more about that finding and we'll, putting aside the question of, of the reason or the cause? 
as I was beginning to talk with bankruptcy attorneys to figure out what was happening in these cases, I heard over and over again that their church clients were all black churches, which is a defined term as a church with a congregation with at least 80% African-American membership. So I set out to track down all 650 congregations that filed from 2006 to 2013 to identify their demographics, which proved more difficult than I had anticipated. I couldn't find 30% of them, but nonetheless, I was able to identify 60% of the debtors as black churches. So I have 60% black churches, 10% white or multiracial or Asian or Latino, and then 30% unknown just based on court records and internet searches, which is a conservative estimate. Um, in, in talking with attorneys who represented more than 100 of the de- these debtors, they said that more than 75% of their clients were black churches. And to compare, 21% of congregations nationwide have predominantly black membership, which means that black churches are filing at least over three times their incidence in the population of congregations across the United States. So Bloomberg reported your hypothesis for the reason or something you explore in your current paper that there's possibly discrimination in loan origination at the front end and then at the workout phase further down the road. So what are your steps coming next to further evaluate this issue? How how you, will you pursue further evaluation of that question? So further evaluation is, is an interesting uh, issue to think through. And the hypothesis I advance in the paper is based on my interviews with attorneys and leaders, um, basically discrimination stemming from implicit bias. But it's important to note that this is just a hypothesis. Uh, I don't have the loan-level data that I would need to back it up with a statistical analysis to show what is really going on in these cases. And so the the best way, I think, to get this data is actually for a legal action, likely under the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, to be brought. Um, And the ECOA allows for private action, but also agency action, such as by the Department of Justice. And the action would need to survive a motion to dismiss, which I think, based on my data, it could which would allow discovery to proceed, and then the loan-level data that I don't have access to and I'm not sure how I would get access to would have to be produced, and then the analysis would be able to be done. But in terms of my next steps, there are other avenues to look for more data that would be useful to discount other hypotheses for the disparity beyond what I explore in the paper. Foreclosure records, for instance, But given that churches are among the most difficult organizations to research simply because they don't have reporting requirements, I think legal action is actually the best option by far to truly evaluate the issue. So while we're waiting for perhaps some of that litigation to happen and for your other research to to unfold, what takeaway from these findings would you want to offer to lawyers and judges working in the system now? Are there things they can do to improve the experience of religious organizations in bankruptcy? I certainly take your point, as your paper explores, that you would like to see improvements in out-of-court negotiations. But in the meantime, bankruptcy is where 
these churches are going to work out these financial problems, and there may be things that could be improved in the system as it exists today. Right. Um, absolutely. So I, I think the most important takeaway for attorneys, judges, and also trustees working in the system is really to understand the experiences that churches and church leadership come with when they enter Chapter 11. The churches obviously are going to be um, primarily black churches. And based on my interviews, they've tried to work something out with their mortgage lender and failed, perhaps on the first try. Um, And so this is what you might call some baggage they're going to bring with them, regardless of the causes. And so just knowing where they're coming from might be useful to to see how they're, you know, what they're acting in court and also during trustee meetings. In addition, I also think it's really important for attorneys and judges to know what typically is happening in these cases, because some judges might see one church file you know, once every two years at most in their courtroom. And so I wrote an article um, describing some of the main issues that come up and also just how successful these cases are on average. And I think the knowledge would be important to see each case in the context of the system while, of course, still seeing it as its own individual case. But knowing what might be coming could cut down on fees and time spent reorganizing, which would obviously be of a benefit both to the church and probably to its creditors. And in future research, I intend to focus more on what is happening in these cases across districts. But also, as I say in the paper, um, I think attorneys really can do a lot during out-of-court negotiations. And my um, main suggestion in the paper is for churches to be aware of what might be going on, or at least aware of what their peer churches are experiencing, and then threaten or move towards Chapter 11 sooner during the negotiation process, basically making a credible threat find a bankruptcy attorney, perhaps one who has taken the church through Chapter 11, and then have that attorney say the church is ready to file, and here's some data about what might happen on average. And it would seem to me that secured creditors would want to come to a deal with the church, um, given how successful these Chapter 11 cases are. But they might simply need a credible threat and also some evidence about what goes on. So that's all the time we have for today. So I want to thank Professor Pamela Foey for the time in the conversation. Thanks for being here, Pamela, with us. Thank you so much, Melissa. And there is uh, an opportunity to study Professor Foey's work in greater detail because all of her papers are widely available. So I want to thank again Professor Foey and thanks to the listeners of this edition of the ABI podcast. And I'm looking forward to joining you for more editions throughout the winter and the spring. (laughs) 